0: You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church Sermon Podcast.
1: Would you continue with me? Let's pray together. Let's bow. Our gracious God, we, we continue to we continue to think on this theme. All I have is Christ. And Father, we know that there is coming a day when every one of us will be more convinced of that than ever before. Or we confess that we are sometimes sleepy, idolaters with other things, stealing our heart's affections. <clears throat> And we are deceived sometimes in this world and in its its life to, to think that other things will last. But Lord, one day when our loved ones lay us in the ground, we will know that day all we have is Christ. And Lord, today and that day are the same, that all that really matters is that we have you. Lord God, we confess this morning that we are the company of people along with brothers and sisters around the world. We are that group of people that have come to find in Jesus Christ the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field, that which is worthy to be, to be claimed and owned and loved above everything else and, and willing to lose everything else for the sake of you, O oh Lord. But we confess how, how weakly we carry that out, that affection for you. And so this, this day, Lord, would you be gracious to once again open your word to us. Help our hearts to not be encumbered with other things. Help our minds not to be distracted with other things. Help us to be taken by the hand with your Holy Spirit leading and to be able to go into the inner recesses of our being and find the things that that block, the things that are obstacles to a completely pure devotion to Jesus that we want to live out. Father, we pray for the town hall meeting this evening. And as a church family, what we are seeking to do uh, individually, we are seeking to do collectively. We confess before you that all we have is Christ. And it's not about budgets and buildings, Lord. It's about Christ. We have you, Lord. And the world desperately needs you. And so, Lord God, if you're leading, if you're leading us as a church family to adjust budgets and buildings for the sake of ministry, then, Lord, it's got to be about you. It's, it's got to be about serving you and prizing you and others coming to know you. And so, Father, would you please have mercy upon us this evening as we share and dialogue and ask questions and receive answers, and as we seek your heart together, Lord, make it an evening that's worthwhile. And lead us, O oh God, as a church family, for your kingdom's sake. Bless, Lord, now as you open up your word. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as you know, I'm um, getting ready. I think I've mentioned it before that uh, this coming January, we're going to be starting back into our Old Testament journey with uh, a look at the life of David. And um, so I've been studying First uh, and Second Samuel already and getting to, to understand how we're going to approach the text and how we're going to present the narrative and how we're going to tell the story of David. So much in David's life to affect us. And uh, in the journey as well, I've been and looking at David. And <clears throat> one of the... Um, Probably one of the most famous pieces of art by Michelangelo is the Sculpture of David, which is in a museum in Florence, Italy. And um, I was reading about that. Uh, in fact, it's it, it said, it said of Michelangelo that when he had finished sculpting this life-size uh, of David, uh, he stood back and he said, now, speak. <laughs> he was so convinced this thing was going to be lifelike, you know. And uh, so I've been reading a little bit about it. and so in the museum in Florence, Italy, where, where David is on display, um, there is actually a corridor that leads up to where he's on display at the end. And, and along the corridor on each side, there is lined other sculptures by Michelangelo. And this is something I just read about this week, and they're called. They're called the Unfinished Slaves, and they were commissioned by Pope Julius in 1505 to be completed by Michelangelo. Shortly after that, however, Michael, the Pope died, the funds diminished, and the project was never completed. In fact, we read that um, Michelangelo only intermittently worked on that project. There were thirty supposed to be thirty in this set, and he, he completed, or he didn't even complete. He he, did, he worked on six of them. That's why they're called the unfinished slaves. But let me describe to you, uh, especially the first of the four that are in this corridor where David is located in Florence. <clears throat> it said that the first piece as you enter the corridor on the left is a figure that feels like it is writhing and straining and going to imminently explode out of the marble block that holds it. The intent latent power one feels is extraordinary. It's a, it's a Herculean effort to be born physically from the imprisoning stone. A titanic struggle to escape the bounds of physical reality and move on to something, some other plane. The endless struggle of man to free himself from his physical constraints and liberate the more enlightened spirit within was all part of the Neoplatonic philosophy that was in vogue at that time. And the burden of the flesh constraining the soul is depicted here. It's an interesting picture, a word picture. If you go online, you can look at this first slave, uh, the unfinished slave. It's called the awakening slave. The second one is called the young slave. A little bit more completed by Michelangelo, a little bit more of the form of the body showing. The third one is called the atlas slave. Shows him holding up constrained underneath this huge weight of the world on his shoulders. The fourth one is the most completed of the four, and it's called the bearded slave. And and he is almost free. He's almost free from the stone. He is the one that has all but his hands and part of his arm are, are actually carved out in polished marble and complete physical form. What a picture this is for me as I saw it online as, and as I studied a bit about it, what a picture this is for me, a metaphor of, of our earthly existence, of what God has designed us to be. What a picture of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. What a picture it is of wrestling with that carnal, fleshly side of ourselves, what a picture of our mortality, our humanness, our weakness, our insecurities, our fears. Can we not all identify with this image of the sculpture half hewn in the rough? Not not the kind of sculptures that we see in Assiniboine Park, in the Leomold Gardens with all the finely... Uh, smoothed out, polished figures, perfectly proportioned physically and so on. Not that kind of picture. That's not what describes us, but rather the half-hewn, in the rough, Michelangelo, unfinished slaves. That's what looks like us. That's what looks like us. It's said that Michelangelo, and of course one knows, never knows when you read five or six hundred years afterwards what's truly quoted and not quoted, but it is said of Michelangelo that when he was in a rock quarry one time picking out a stone that was going to be carved into one of these uh, kinds of sculptures that he couldn't find what he was looking for and he was pointed, he noticed in the corner of the yard a, a refuse pile of huge blocks of marble and he went over and examined one and, and, and the attendant said That's, that, was, that was a reject. And he studied it, this piece of stone from the, all angles. And then, and then he said to the attendant, Have it delivered to my studio. There is an angel imprisoned in this block of stone. And I'm going to set it free.
0: <laughs>
1: Famous words. Is that not the feeling you get sometimes? Sometimes. As a Christian, when you're trying to obey God, when you're trying to work out your salvation and you've got the the carnage of flesh and sin and weakness and fear and all the stuff that goes with it and it's dragging you down, do you not feel like this half-hewn-in-the-rough piece of art that God is working out? Do you not identify with the theme verse, chapter 1, verse 6, that between what God began in you and what God is going to complete in you, there's this real difficult time of life? I do. I do. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Philippians? Philippians chapter 2. Paul, in true Pauline form, is earnest in every letter he ever wrote. And in this letter as well. What he is earnest about is that Jesus Christ is formed in the people that are called Christ ones. The people that name the name will not shame the name. The people that name the name will will not only claim the name, but all that goes with the name of Jesus. And so, Philippians chapter 2, would you stand with me as we read yet again from this portion that we started with last week, and now we will conclude, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be, in, uh, uh, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill, indeed he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also to me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. May God bless his word. You may be seated. If you'll notice in your sermon insert, that pink piece of paper, uh, we're going to recap a little bit of what we started last week when we examined the shape of Jesus Christ's life. It's in that shape of that triangle down and then up, And uh, the goal that God has for our lives is to transform us, to sculpt us into the image of Jesus Christ. We're in the rough right now. We're the rough block of stone. There's parts of Jesus Christ that are, are emerging in your character, in your behavior, in your will, in your attitudes. There's parts of Jesus Christ emerging, but we resemble that rough-hewn stone that is yet to be worked on, that God is working on. And the goal that that Jesus has is to to bring us into the image of Jesus. Have you ever noticed in society that there are many groups of people that are glad to talk about God, but they don't want to hear the name of Jesus? Have you ever noticed that? I noticed it in Canada, especially in Canada, that you can talk about God, it's not too hard, but, but you, you mention the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, and you will get resistance. You will get some uncomfortable feelings. You see, Paul was all about Jesus. Paul could not minimize Jesus because it, he was, we just sung it, all I have is Christ. And so he had to talk about, he wanted to make much Of Jesus and those that know Christ but have been redeemed by his blood, that have been given eternal life and forgiveness, and are convinced that he is our life, we cannot make little of Jesus, we must make much of him. And that's why Paul is talking, he says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, there's there's many that you mention the name Jesus, you get this reaction. It's because somehow latent in their spirit, there's a resistance to Jesus, there's a rebellion. There's something that says, I don't want to live for Jesus, I don't want to submit to God, I want to be following the God that I create in my ideas. And, and yet Jesus says in his own word that, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and one day, voluntarily or not, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so our goal is to get our lives into the shape of Jesus. He is worthy and uh, so as we, as we picture what Jesus did, the shape of the text in verses 5 to 11, we studied two weeks ago, that's the shape of the discipled life. That's your goal as you get in shape, as you work out your salvation. That's your goal, to empty yourself, to humble yourself, to become the servant, to serve the needs of others instead of your own agenda, and to become more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. How did he do it? Well, he he became the way he did because of all the choices that he made. And you can read about them in verses 5 to 11. And then God accomplished his work through him. You see, the Calvary Road is a road that is paved with choices made to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow Christ. It is marked with suffering. Sometimes the suffering of the Calvary Road is marked with suffering that we choose to, to enter into and we could avoid if we made other choices. But the discipled life says, no, this is the way, walk in it. The Calvary Road is one that we cannot say we're, we're solid on, we, we're weak. We stumble on this road. We are not resolved sometimes, but very ambivalent on this road. We are not sure-footed, but very faltering on this road. But we are on this road. We have chosen to take up our cross and follow Christ. And so Paul, knowing how feeble we our efforts are to follow Christ, follows verse 12 of working out our own salvation in fear and trembling with verse 13 by saying, For it is God at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so the working of it out is, is part of what he's doing in us. So the, the, the goal we have in to progress in this journey is to, to keep our focus on Christ and his power within us, not our strength to overcome. Secondly, to, to, to assume the posture of humility and servanthood. And thirdly, to, to make the choices that come our way as God gives us opportunity to, sh- to choose him, to choose his lordship. The third thing we talked about last week, verse 14, we studied last week that we cannot work out our salvation all by ourselves. You know, kind of like working out physically. You go down to the basement and you, you sweat it out all by yourself, no one has to see that you really are trying to look as good as you look. You know, but, but spiritually speaking, when you work out your salvation, you've got to enter the arena of the relationships that God in His providence has set in your pathway. The spouse you married, the person that you work with, the people around you, your classmates, everybody God has put there for you to help you work out your salvation. And so all of the things that he's doing, he's doing on purpose. That's why Paul says in verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. You see, because there's going to come in your life relationships that make you want to complain and argue, irritations. I want to encourage you. Next time you come across someone who irritates you, I want you to just pause and ask yourself, Why did God put this person in my life? You've already asked yourself that question. (laughs) Preaching to the choir, okay. (laughs) Boy, I'm resonating here. Ask yourself, why did God put that person here? What is he teaching me? I can't change what he's teaching them, if he's teaching them anything, if their ears are open. But I can change what he's teaching me. What does it say to me about my self-absorption? What does it say to me about my humility, my servant heart, my assumptions in life, my humility? I'm amazed. Every once in a while I think, I think I'm becoming like Jesus. And 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 I'm making the choices to put my agenda on the shelf and to go and help someone else with their agenda. I think I I make little, little headway. I think... I'm, I'm becoming like Jesus. And then all of a sudden something happens and, and I realize I don't want to put my agenda on the shelf and I don't want to help them with their agenda, their priorities. You know, it happens in the hour by hour choices of life. Got a long way to go with us. So Paul is saying, work it out. Work out your salvation and recognize that that's when we're most like Christ. Christ. That's when we're most like Christ. When we choose the Calvary Road, when we begin to see that kind of offering of ourselves as part of our sanctification. The fourth thing that we talk about, moving on to verse 15, is that we... Work it out in the world. Not only do we not have the luxury of working out our salvation in the privacy of our own walk with God, but we must do it in relationships with others. We also must do it before a watching world. We have a, we have to do this. We have to work out our salvation and become more like Jesus with a whole bunch of people who don't love Jesus watching us try to do that. And some of them are actually just waiting on tiptoe to criticize and condemn you because, oh, see what your religion brings you? And so there is this other element of verse 15. He says, Becoming children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Remember that rhyme, twinkle, twinkle, little star? How I wonder what you are. That's what the world's saying the world is looking at you and I, and they're looking at, hopefully, some of the decisions and choices and ways that we live that are contrary to the way the world lives. And they're saying, what are you? Who are, what makes you do that? Why would you choose that when you could do this? What are you doing with your life? Why are you not swimming with the, with the stream? You see, that's what the world looks at. And you see the key area that Paul points to in verse 15 as to where we do not fit in where we shine like stars in this universe has to do with character. Has to do with character. It says that we become blameless and pure children of God, blameless and pure, having integrity, being people who are through and through authentic. That's what makes the light shine. You know, during the day, <clears throat> our, our brightest star is our sun. During the night, the brightest star is what they call Sirius. And I love to go outside of the city uh, uh, sometimes in a nice, cool, or uh, nice evening where, where it's a clear, clear sky. And against the dark sky, you can see every star. Now, some of the stars shine brighter. But you know what? Against a dark night sky, every star shines. Even though it's, I don't know how many miles away. And you know, that's the point. That's Christians. That as we just seek to, in the rough that we are, as we seek to carve out Jesus Christ's life and work out our salvation against the black drop of this dark, crooked, perverse generation that we live in, every one of us is Shining. It has to be that way if Christ is in you. Every one of us is shining. And so shine. Shine like stars. And when we're shining, there's another thing that's connected to that in verse 16. And Paul adds that we shine like stars, and here it is, as we hold out the word of life. And the picture here, literally... The picture here, when this language is described in the Greek text, is two people walking down a path together. One has a lantern, the other has nothing. The one with the lantern is shining, holding out the lantern, so that the other one beside him can walk together. And you're holding out the word of life, so that the world can walk and see in the light what God's word teaches it's a powerful picture as you hold out the word of life in this crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars. You know, it's sad to think about the, the last 20 years. There's been such a uh, just degradating of the Bible, uh, uh, a lessening of biblical literacy. And, and what grieves my heart most is not just that Bible facts and narratives and stories, truths, are being lost to, to younger people especially, but rather that it's the moral fiber and the oughtness of society that is being lost. There's this. There's the, there, we're losing this sense of where does right and wrong originate from. The moral high ground is no longer sort of seen. It's like it's being eroded. And now we don't know where to, to put solid feet on. Because we live in a relativistic sea, a swamp of nowhere to put your foot. What is the basis of lawmaking and of judgments of, of moral or ethical value? <clears throat> Excuse me. In the third century, Roman Emperor Diocletian killed many Christians, burned Bibles, thinking he could bring to an end to the Christian faith. Ten years later, Constantine was converted to Christ, and Christianity became the official religion of Rome. In the 18th century, Voltaire said in 50 years the Bible would neither be printed or read. And 50 years later, ironically, they were printing Bibles in his own printing press. Robert Soce has said that once you leave the authority of the Bible, you begin to resemble the authority of the culture that you live in. And so we've got there. We're starting to resemble the authority of the culture, which is what? It's relativism. It's, if it's right for you, it's right for you. I don't know what's right for me. You see, we must, not, we must be careful not to adopt the Canadian attitude that it's okay to believe whatever you want. We can respect, in fact, I would go farther, I will say we must defend even the right of every individual to believe what they want. But that does not mean that we leave them alone to believe what they want. I will defend the right of them to believe what they want, but I shall not leave them alone. It's like thinking of a neighbor whose house is on fire, and they're so deluded they don't think the house is on fire. And so they just carry on sleeping. Well, the love of compassion in Jesus Christ would say, Wake them up, get them out. You see, just because someone is on a deluded trail thinking that there are no absolutes, that there's no accountability to God on the last day of judgment, does not mean I let them follow that path. So we're swimming in a sea. You know, Doug, Kevin, and I were at a pastor's prayer group, pastors and Christian leaders in the city. I think it was about a week ago, and, and a prayer meeting at our table. One of the pastors shared a little story about our forefathers, the Fathers of Confederation, when they met in 1864 in Prince Edward Island, Charlotte Prince Edward Island. And one of the 33 Fathers of Confederation named Sir Samuel Leonard Tilley. that very morning as they were working out the British North American Act that would bring about the United Canada three years later, as they were working that out, that very morning in his quiet time, as he opened his Bible, he turned to Psalm 72 verse 8, and he read these words, He shall have dominion from sea to sea. He took that verse to the meeting, and he shared it with the rest of the fathers of Confederation. And they decided that's the language that we want to define our country. And so we are called a dominion of Canada based on Psalm 72 verse 8. You see dominion implies sovereignty. Dominion implies sovereignty and that implies a sovereign one. God the sovereign one from sea to sea is lord over Canada. But we must we we dare not think That we can claim the blessings of living under his dominion if we do not follow his word. We will not mock God long before we reap the benefits or the curses of not being the dominion of God. You see, we're supposed to be Christians that hold out the word of life in this crooked and perverse generation in which we are shining like stars. Friends, there are so many ways we can do this. There are so many ways that we can do this. We're called to hold out the word of life. That doesn't mean we get preachy. That doesn't mean we get a camera ahead of us and go on the multimedias and just start spouting off fundamentalistic ideas and truths. But it does mean that we have a conscience, that we maintain that we are the voice of the conscience of society, that we are the still small voice crying out in the wilderness. It does mean that in our circles where God places other people, where they're going will, to willing to listen instead of following the party line and the, and the status quo and the politically correct, that we're going we're gonna to be able to have an influence one by one if we'll just open our mouths and say, that's not what I believe. And here's why. I, I believe the scriptures teach otherwise. If we would just have the courage to be the people of God and to hold out the word of life, You see, just for now, this year, you might be walking with someone because of a classmate, a work situation, or or some neighborhood you live in or something. You might just have to walk with somebody right now, and you only have eight months to do that, and you're holding out the word of life for that individual to just for now have a little bit of light on their path. It might be the very thing that turns the trajectory of the rest of their life toward God. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Man, there's so many social issues upon Canada's agenda right now. We, we just are, Our heads are shaking every time we turn the news on. And dare we open our mouths on some issues without getting branded... From everything from gender issues to, to assisted suicide. There is no end of things that the word of God speaks to. The word of life speaks to these things. We as Christians ought to hold out the word of life in our relationships. But instead we're afraid we'll get branded somehow. Friends, we, this ought not to be. God has put us where we are. Where we are for a reason. Paul says that next, uh, that he's being poured out, verses 17 and 18. This is another way of again working out our salvation. Paul was an example of a man being transformed by Christ, and uh, he was. In verse 17, he says, Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'll be glad and rejoice. You know, the picture here is an Old Testament sacrifice. Imagine a goblet of wine held in the Old Testament priest's hand, literally coming to the altar and just pouring out the wine. Just pouring out the wine as an offering to God. That was the, the drink offering. And Paul is saying, you know what? I I am here in prison in Rome, but I am so glad that I've had a chance to influence you in Philippi. And even if all that I've done in serving your faith and your faith is stronger and there's going to be more people in the kingdom for eternity because of the fact that my life was poured out, I'll rejoice. I'll rejoice. Take me home now if you want to, Lord. But if I'm going to stick around, Lord, make it fruitful labor. Let me pour out even more. For the sake of more people being worshippers of the true and living God. That's what our lives are to be. We're to just be poured out. Like a drink offering. Let's move to the final point of our, of our text in verses 19 to 30. The, the, the final thing I want to say. Very important about how we work out our salvation. Is that we're not meant to do it Alone. We're meant to do it in the company of a kindred spirit. God wants every one of us to have a soulmate. God wants us to have a kindred spirit, a friend in Christ, a person with the same heart, with the same values, with the same bent in life. Notice that in this scripture, Paul mentions two men that were invaluable to him. They become soulmates, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy is mentioned first, and he's like a son in the faith to Paul. Look at what he says in verse 20. Paul says, I have no one else like him. Can you say that about someone in your life? Can you say that about someone in your life in terms of your spiritual journey? I have no one else like this person. I trust them implicitly. They have the same heart for God as I do. They know what the issues in my life are. They're working them out with me. And I will continue to walk with them. I have no one else like them. God bless you if you have one. If you have two or three, God bless you even more. You know what? They're worth searching for. And if they don't come, if you don't have one in your life right now like that, just keep praying, God, show me who that is. And in the meantime, get your life into the state and quality of character to be ready to be one of those people for someone else when God opens the door. Timothy was like that for Paul. Epaphroditus was like that. Look at the adjectives. For Epaphroditus, in verse 25 to 30, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, became ill, almost died for the sake of the gospel. Paul just loved Epaphroditus, and he's going to send him back to the Philippi because, you see, Philip, uh, Epaphroditus was most likely, there's nothing in the text explicitly stating this, but most likely Epaphroditus was a deacon from the church at Philippi. And the, the word deacon simply means servant. As we know, doulos or diaconos, But the, the word in its underlying meaning has an even deeper understanding. I was reading this this week. That the word carries with it the meaning of stirring up the dust. And it's the picture of someone who is so busy. So busy in the Lord's work. And whatever God's directed them to. That there's this stirring up of the dust behind them. That's the deacon. Kevin is pastor of worship and care here, and he leads the ministry of the deacons. And he's been building a team, and in a few weeks, he's going to be introducing you to some of the deacons and what their role is in our church family. Very important role. They're stirring up the dust all the time. They're, they're, They're busy serving the Lord. God says in his word, honor people like this that serve among you. As we conclude, let me just share with you a few things that if we were to put together all that we know about Epaphroditus and and Timothy from the scriptures, I would say there are seven things that would demonstrate this Christ-like servant attitude of a deacon or of someone, any one of us who wants to serve the Lord. So here's how they're exemplary. Number one, there is this genuine interest in the welfare of others. I mean, we... We can see sometimes it's heavy laden upon people. There's just this genuine interest in serving other people. Not self-serving. Secondly, there is an ability to serve alongside others. They're team players. These are deacons. These are people like Epaphroditus and Timothy. They they didn't care if Paul was in the limelight, if they were second fiddle. It didn't matter. They just were doing what they... Who knows if... Epaphroditus liked to travel. He had to travel because that was the need. And he served alongside Paul for that season of time. Thirdly, they've proven the quality of their work. These are proven people. They've, They've been among us. They've walked and they're proven to be worthy of being servants among us. Fourthly, they're willing to assume assume the servant role according to the need. In other words, they're willing to do some of the jobs that maybe isn't lined up completely with their gifting and, and their passion and their desire, but they're just willing to serve where the need is. Fifth, they're emotionally invested in the lives of those that they serve. Not this arm's length service, not this like, Quarantine, sterile service, but rather emotionally invested. You get that from Timothy and Epaphroditus and Silas and others that were with Paul. Sixth, they, they were willing to risk their lives for the cause of Christ. And then finally, they're, they're worthy of honor. I'm going to ask Pastor Alf Bell to come and to share in a closing word of prayer And uh, and as he's coming, Alf, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to be thinking about what part of the message resonates with you, and uh, what part is it that God wants you to take home of this as you work out your salvation, as you become more and more in the shape of Christ. What is it that God is saying to you and to us as a church, Pastor Alf? Thank you.
0: Uh, Let Let's all stand. And humbly raise our arms like the Old (laughs) Testament people. O Lord our God, we who have messed up our lives in many ways and counted ourselves unworthy of your grace, come to you and ask that you help us. So, to understand your forgiving grace, mm. so to experience your redemption in our lives, that our hearts burn not only with praise, mm. but with a sense of commission for reaching a lost world now and forevermore. Yes. Amen.